This is lecture number 12 by Robert Benoit on the Major Prophets, dealing specifically with Isaiah. Lecture number 12. We were talking about the arguments for so-called Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah. The first was that concepts and ideas differ. This is hardly a convincing argument. The second argument is differences in language and style between the so-called two sections. I think that's a more important argument. In Driver's introduction, for example, on pages 238 and 239, he lists a lot of words that occur in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, but do not occur in chapters 1 to 39. And then he lists words that occur frequently in chapters 40 to 66, but only rarely in chapters 1 to 39. So you get these long lists of words that either occur not at all in the first part or very infrequently in the first part, but do occur in the second part. It's on that kind of analysis that a lot of this argument rests. I think in response it can be said that it's not too surprising that you would find words in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 that don't occur in the earlier part of the book because the word usage depends to a large degree on the subject matter. If you have different subject matters, it's not surprising that you're going to have different terminology. So I don't think in itself a listing of words that occur in one part and not in the other is terribly convincing. I think the strongest part of the argument from style is that certain linguistic oddities are pointed out that are said to belong to a usage of later time, that is, later time of Hebrew usage. Linguistic oddities belonging to a usage of a later time are found in Isaiah 40-66, to it is claimed. Now, Driver speaks of that on page 240 of his commentary. To get into that becomes very technical. I'm not going to do a lot with that, but I will say that even here the argument is not something that is conclusive. G.C.H. Alders, in his Introduction to the Old Testament... That's a Dutch work, but Alder says, for example, to take one illustration of it, an argument has been made that difference in style is seen in the strong preference in Deutero-Isaiah for the first-person singular pronoun in Hebrew, ani, instead of its alternative, again in Hebrew, anoki. So Deutero-Isaiah prefers ani instead of anoki, and that is said to indicate linguistic usage of a later time. Now, the way that works out is in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66, there's a heavy use of the Hebrew pronoun ani instead of anoki, and that's supposed to reflect usage of a later time than what Isaiah is supposed to have been written. They propose that kind of argument. Now, what Alders does is to look at the usage of that elsewhere. For example, in Haggai, you have Ani used five times, and Anoki is used no times. Now, you see, Haggai is post-exilic, so you're in post-exilic times with Haggai, and you don't have Anoki used at all. In Zechariah, Ani is used nine times. Anoki is not used. Zechariah is also post-exilic. If you go to Ezekiel, you have Ani used 162 times, and Anoki only a few times. He doesn't enumerate the number of times, but it is used just a few times. In other words, it does occur. That is to say, Anoki does occur in Ezekiel, but Ezekiel is earlier than Haggai and Zechariah.
Ezekiel is not post-exilic, it's during the exile. So we're moving back towards earlier times as we go from Haggai and Zechariah to Ezekiel. You're in exilic times with Ezekiel. Now what Alder says is that it's clear that the tendency not to use Anuki in the time of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, had not progressed as far as the time of Ezekiel, because you've got 21 times there where Anuki is used in the second part of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. In other words, it would seem to indicate that these chapters are earlier than Ezekiel. So they're not in the time of the exile, but sometime prior to the exile, if you look at that kind of a usage. So if you get into matters of linguistic oddities, you get into that kind of discussion. And here's with the use of Ani and Anoki. It certainly is not something, however, that is conclusive. Then, on the other hand, you have studies made that demonstrate points of linguistic agreement between the two sections of the book. So if you get into language and style, you get some unique kinds of linguistic things that you find in both parts of the book of Isaiah that would tend to utilize this kind of analysis for the unity rather than for the disunity of the book. For example, you're familiar with the expression, thus saith the Lord, and that in Hebrew is kol amar Adonai. Now that expression is very common in almost all the prophetic books. There is a variant to that expression in Isaiah, where you have, instead of kol amar Adonai, kol yomer Adonai, with an imperfect tense to the verb instead of the perfect tense. In other words, yomer is substituted for amar. The perfect is replaced by an imperfect, and that variant appears only in Isaiah, and it appears in both sections of Isaiah. In other words, it appears in chapter 1, verse 11, and verse 18. It appears in chapter 33, verse 10. It appears in chapter 40, verse 1, and also in chapter 40, verse 25. You have it in verse 21 of chapter 41, and verse 9 of chapter 66, the last chapter. So you see, it's kind of spread through the whole book. It's in the first section of the book, and in the second section of the book. It is a variant from a very common expression, and it occurs only in Isaiah, and it occurs in both sections of Isaiah. The tendency is that with Anoki, the later you go, it tends to be used less and less. So you get closer to post-exilic times. It's not used at all in the exilic times, except just a little bit. But in Isaiah, it's used about a third or fourth of the time. This is Alder's representation of it. In other words, Alders is saying that Anoki is used less in the post-exilic period. If you analyze the post-exilic and exilic books, it tends to be used less than it tends to be used in pre-exilic times. In other words, this is not a strong argument for a late post-exilic date for Deutero-Isaiah. Many allege that Deutero-Isaiah is late, post-exilic, when Cyrus is ready to let Israel return from exile. They say that's the historical setting, and usually critical scholars say Cyrus is already on the scene, thus his name could be used, and the writer was someone living in the time of the rise of Cyrus around 539 B.C. But this is more than two times post-exilic usage, 
So what you see on this line, if you're going to say the usage of auto key moves along this line from more to less, it means you can't place Deutero Isaiah late because you have to place him in pre-exilic times. Now, I know the argument of the use of Ani and Anoki is technical and a bit esoteric, but these are the kind of arguments people get into in trying to establish whether so-called Deutero-Isaiah is real or if it is not. Well, all right. Now, let's go to a book by Rachel Margaliot. When you get to study the language and style, her book is really significant because you have to know a good amount of Hebrew to understand what she is saying. She presents a very well-argued case for the unity of the book based largely on agreement in language and style between the two parts. Look at page 26 of your citations. And this is taken from pages 5 and 6 of Margaliot's book. She says, and I'm quoting here, Krauss enumerates 18 words and expressions peculiar to Isaiah the second. That means second Isaiah. Several of them, he admits, are to be found, notice this, also in Isaiah the first. But in chapters that Krauss ascribes to Isaiah the second, they're also there. And so, if you list these things as unique to second Isaiah, but then, if you find it in the first part, you just say, well, that part was from second Isaiah as well. Margaliot continues, but even if such expressions were to be found in a far greater number, what proof can be deduced therefrom? Do special words or expressions in one or another chapter prove anything? Does that fact give ground for separating this chapter or any other from the body of the book? And I'm continuing to quote from Margaliot. In the prophets, it is not unusual for one word or more to appear several times in certain chapters, although they are not found even once in any of the preceding chapters. Take the expression, the vengeance of the Lord, which appears several times in Jeremiah, chapters 50 and 51, but is not to be found again in the whole book of Jeremiah. Is that sufficient reason for separating these two chapters out from the rest of the book? Or again, the expression, slain by the sword, is found no fewer than ten times in Ezekiel, chapters 31 and 32, but does not appear even once in the preceding chapters. Does that mean Ezekiel 31 is a start of a second Ezekiel? In every prophetic book, it is possible to point to numerous words, phrases, and expressions appearing several times in only one chapter or in a group of chapters and not elsewhere in the book. I continue quoting Margaliot. We are left to conclude, then, that such words or phrases are favored in terms of the context, the specific message of the prophecy given in the particular chapter. As regards to the arguments that the two sections of the book of Isaiah differ in language and style, which according to Ben Ze'ev, another commentator, by the way, is the thing that cannot be proved by example. We shall demonstrate in this book by hundreds of examples that the opposite is true. Not only are the two sections similar, both in language and style, but they are remarkable for their unity, in that the similarities between them cannot be ascribed to any influence whatsoever. And here I end the quote from Ruth Margaliot's book. Then what she does in her book is this. Notice the next statement, quote, The system here employed to demonstrate the unity of both parts is as follows. 
After classifying the entire book of Isaiah by subject, we have shown that in regard to each subject, both parts employ innumerable like expressions, which are peculiar only to this book of Isaiah. It has been proved also that the specific expressions reveal the same usage in both parts. Some even common expressions are distinguished by particular use of identical terms. The second section inverts the words of the first. Passages and word groups of the first are composed of elements found only in the second and vice versa. End quote. And by the first and second, she means first Isaiah versus second Isaiah. Now, I have not included further comments in your citations from her book on this, but you see that she does classify the entire book of Isaiah by subject. Here are some of her subjects. Designations of God, designations of the people of Israel, formulas of prophecy, messages of consolation, and things of that sort. She has, in fact, 15 subject headings. The way she works that out is this. Say the first one, called Designations of God, what she does is she lists divine titles used exclusively in Isaiah of the Lord, divine titles unique to Isaiah, but they are common in both parts of Isaiah, first Isaiah and so-called Deutero or second Isaiah. Look at the designations of the people of Israel. There are 11 epithets referring to the Jewish people alike in both parts of Isaiah. If you take the heading Formulas of Prophecy, there are 20 introductory formulas opening or stressing prophecies in the earlier chapters with their linguistic parallels in the second section. You see, she goes through the book like that and just piles evidence upon evidence of similarity of linguistic usage in unique kinds of ways that occur in both parts of the book. I think she makes a powerful case by doing that for unity of the book. See words of ammunition that she uses as another category. 21 different wordings for rebuke are peculiar to Isaiah, and yet they are used in both parts of the book. Now, let's get back to the argument of the critics. They say you see that there is a difference in language and style in both parts of the book of Isaiah. Margaliel turns that around and says, yes, but there is a similarity of language and style on the basis of her careful analysis. Now, it seems to me that with this kind of argumentation, no matter which way you're going, the complete proof of authenticity can no more be provided by this method than can the reverse. I don't think this kind of argument is conclusive either way. I mean, you could say with Margaliot's finding, these unique expressions in both parts of the book, theoretically, you could say, well, Deutero-Isaiah was so familiar with the first part of Isaiah that he used these similar constructions. Deutero-Isaiah was so familiar with the first part of the book that he adapted the expressions in his own writing and utilized them in the second. You could say something like that. I don't think it's reasonable, but indeed that is what the critics do say. Isn't it wonderful how well second Isaiah knew first Isaiah that he could use the same phraseology? But of course he came later. So, I don't think that Margaliot can prove without any question the unity of the book by this kind of a method, but I certainly feel that her method is more secure than the other that tries to divide the book. At least, it provides an answer to those who want to divide Isaiah. But I think the reverse is true as well. 
You can't prove that there are two different authors because you find some evidences of differences in language and style. What constitutes such a difference in language and style that would force you to the conclusion that you must have two different writers? I'm sure that if you took your own writing from 15 years ago and compared it with something you were writing today, you would find some differences. And yet, you did write both. So from this type of argument, I don't think that you can prove conclusively either the unity of the book or the disunity of the book. I think that what Margalioth has done, though, is an answer to the kind of argument that the critics have accepted is that you can equally well produce a very solid argument for the unity of the book as you can for the difference between the two sections. So the book is complex, and the language is complex, and the usages of the terms are also complex. Now look at page 27 of your citations. There is another thing that we're probably going to hear more and more about. That is the use of computer linguistic assessment of biblical material as it relates to the question of authorship. In Oswald's book on Isaiah, remember Oswald is a well-known commentator, in his commentary on chapters 1 to 39, he alludes to that in connection with this issue of Deutero-Isaiah. Notice what he says, and I quote here, The nearest thing to objective proof of a lack of unity and a composition that appears is in Y. Raddy's impressive investigation. Raddy's work is The Unity of Isaiah in the Light of Statistical Linguistics. Raddy, or Raddy, depending on how you pronounce it, did a computerized study of numerous linguistic features of the book of Isaiah and compared these in the various sections of the book. As a control, he studied other pieces of literature, both biblical and extra-biblical, which were reputed to have come from one author. As a result of these researches, he concluded that the linguistic variations were so severe that one author could not have produced the whole book of Isaiah. As might be expected, these conclusions were greeted with approbation by critical scholars who saw their position as being vindicated. But in fact, Rade's conclusions call into question some scholarly views of other people. A number of questions may be raised concerning Rade's methodology. The very infancy of the field of statistical linguistic raises some question in and of itself. Do we yet know enough to speak with confidence about the possible limits of variation in a given person's usage? I think that's a very real question. Now, continuing with Oswald, note that another sort of computerized study of the book's characteristics led to the conclusion that it is a unitary composition. That is, it's all the same. And I refer here to L.L. Adams and A.C. Rinkter. And they have an article called The Popular Critical View of the Isaiah Problem in the Light of Statistical Style Analysis. And this occurred in the magazine or journal Computer Studies in 1973. There you have two studies come out with opposite conclusions. That is, the one by Raddy and those by Adams and Rinker. Again, quoting Oswald. While yet another study, A. Kosher, called The Book of Isaiah, Characterization of Authors by Morphological Data Processing, in a French journal, concluded that the composition is not a unity, but his results pointed to different divisions of the book than did Raddy's. For a review of the difficulties inherent in the statistical approach, 
I suggest that you see Posner in his article, The Use and Abuse of Statistic Styles. And there's the end of the quote by Oswald. Now, I don't know where that field of linguistic computer studies is going. I think it's just beginning, and I doubt it's going to be pursued. But what Oswald says is certainly something at this point that is appropriate. We don't know enough to speak with confidence about the possible limits of variation of a particular person's language usage. In the studies at this point, we're conflicting, as you see, when you compare Radays and Adams and Rickner and Kasher and all these studies, some who differ on the unity of Isaiah come up with different divisions for the book, and yet the study by Adams and Rickner say that the book is all a unity. So all you have to do is say that, and to many people, that is, if you just say a computer analysis shows the disunity of the book, to many people, well, that concludes it. The computer knows. But what kind of things do you feed into the computer, and how do you make those judgments? Remember the old phrase, garbage in, garbage out. Well, I want to get back to footnote 5 here. And again, I am quoting from Oswald. None of this is to question the integrity with which Radé's study was undertaken and performed. He's a good researcher but it is to point out that the evidence is still not as objective as a manuscript in which only chapters 1 to 39 or some such would appear, End quote. Now, what Oswald is saying, what would conclude things, is if some ancient manuscript was found that contained only chapters 1 to 39 and another one that contained only chapters 40 to 66. There is no manuscript evidence, however, for two Isaiahs. In fact, you have the Dead Sea Scroll material, and Isaiah is a single book. That's the earliest manuscript of Isaiah that we have. And then he says in footnote 6, It is ironic that those who lauded the reliability of Radé's methodology as it applied to Isaiah were much less convinced of its reliability when he recently reported the same methodology established the unity of the book of Genesis. And if there's any book that the critics tear apart into JDP, it's Genesis. Well, everything but D, perhaps. Let's go on to the argument from historical background. That argument from language and style, it seems to me, is not a conclusive argument. But I think that you have to look at it both ways. The very nature of the argumentation means that it is very difficult to construct a cohesive argument on the basis of linguistics for the unity of Isaiah. So we move on to the argument derived from historical background. I think that probably is the most important argument. Not that it is one that is convincing necessarily, but I think of the three arguments, it's undoubtedly the most important argument of all. It's undeniable that Isaiah chapters 40 to 52 has a very different historical background than the earlier part of the book. As we've noticed so far, in the early part of the book, there's a lot of rebuke, an announcement of coming judgments and prediction of the exile because of Israel's sin. Then you come to Isaiah chapter 40 and following. You don't have that kind of material. In fact, the situation is that the people seem already to be in exile. The emphasis now in these chapters is on the promise that God will deliver them from captivity. So instead of an announcement of judgment... There is consolation and comfort and hope along with the promises of God's intervention on their behalf. 
So in the first part of the book, there are many references to the Assyrians as the great enemy and the tool that God is going to use for the punishment of the Israelites. But you get to the latter part of the book, and it's not the Assyrians who are in view, but the Babylonians, and then the rise of Cyrus, the Persian. The people are in bondage to the Babylonians, but soon they are to be rescued by the hand of God through the instrumentality of Cyrus, the Persian. So there are very different historical backgrounds for the first and the second parts of the book of Isaiah. Now, given that historical background, we can explain things in two ways. The way the critics suggest is that the latter part of the book is written by a different author who lived after the exile had begun and was in progress, and the historical background is the background of that writer who was living much later than the time of Isaiah the prophet. That's one way to explain the difference. The other way is to say that Isaiah wrote it. In his doing that, he was led by the Spirit of God to bring these words of comfort and hope to his people after they would have gone into exile, that the exile would not be forever, but that God would intervene and deliver them. Now, those are not only two ways you can explain it. If you take the latter view, the view that Isaiah is the writer, You can still ask the question, and this is a question that is often asked, what would be any purpose in Isaiah's writing something in his time, the time of 1st Isaiah, that would have reference to events that were not going to happen to the people of Israel at that time, but happened in the distant future? Look at page 28 of your citations under Wybray's Little Study Guide, second paragraph. Wybray, by the way, has a liberal view of Isaiah. This comes from page 4 of his so-called Second Isaiah booklet. Here's what he says. It is clearly addressed, that is the latter part of Isaiah, is clearly addressed to a group of people who have been exiled from their homeland by a conquering power, which also is referred to by name, Babylon. And then in four passages, and he lists them here, chapter 43, verse 14, and verse 47, And then chapter 48, verse 14 and verse 20, Babylon is spoken of by name in these terms, and this historical situation is confirmed by numerous other passages. Chapters 40 to 55 then would have made, notice what he says, no sense in the 8th century when the people of Jerusalem and Judah were still living at home under the rule of their own kings, when Babylon, far from being a great power, was, and remained until the fall of Assyria in the late 7th century B.C., long after the death of Isaiah, merely one of the cities of the Assyrian Empire. And when Cyrus had not yet been born in the Persian Empire and did not exist. On the other hand, everything in these chapters make good sense as the message of a 6th century prophet to Jewish exiles in Babylon. So, in a sense, what Wybray is asking is, what is the sense of Isaiah's message from chapters 40 to 66 to his own contemporaries? What relevance does it have for them? Well, look at Freeman's answer to that question, page 25 of your citations. This is from Freeman's Introduction of the Old Testament Prophets. And he says, quote, Not every prophecy needs to be traced to a definite contemporary historical situation nor directly applicable to the generation to whom it is spoken. It cannot be maintained, as the commentator Driver contends, that the prophet speaks always to a person who is his own contemporary. 
The message which he brings is intimately related to the circumstances of his time. His promises and predictions correspond to the needs which are then felt. Obviously, contradictions to this concept of prophecy are. Zechariah 9-14 speaks of things way beyond the time of Zechariah's contemporaries. Daniel chapters 11 and 12 speak to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, which is around 165 B.C. Isaiah, chapters 24 to 27, that's Isaiah's apocalypse. He's talking about the end times in addition to those already mentioned. This is not to overlook, of course, a general relationship of prophecy to the historical situations that's called forth with prophetic utterance, end quote. I think what Freeman is saying is it's quite clear that not all prophecy has direct and immediate application to the contemporaries the prophets were speaking to. I think that's taken for granted. That is to say, prophets do spend a lot of time discussing the present situation to their contemporaries, but that does not shackle them into not being able to say anything to the future. So when you get to Isaiah 40-66, to even though Friedman is correct in pointing that out, I think that you still can say that Isaiah 40-66 to does serve a purpose in relation to God's people in Isaiah's own day. In the early part of the book, Isaiah seems to have two objectives. First was to declare to the nation its sin and its duty to repent. He does that repeatedly. Then secondly... His duty is to tell Judah that God was going to punish them for their sin and was going to send them into exile. That also was quite clear. There were those who listened to Isaiah and responded to his message, although they were the exception, a definite minority. For the most part, the majority of the people turned away from what he said, and they didn't even want to hear it. The prediction of Isaiah chapter 6 was being fulfilled. Remember, in that vision of Isaiah's call, the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and following, quote, Go tell this people, hear indeed, but understand not. See indeed, but perceive not. Make their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see. And so the people were not going to respond to this message, and for the most part, they didn't. That aspect of Isaiah's message in chapter 6 indeed was being fulfilled in his own lifetime. It was also clear that the exile predicted in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, was inevitable. Look at what verses 11 and 12 of chapter 6 say. Quote, then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. End quote. He was speaking of the exile already in chapter 6. He then gave those people hope that the exile was not going to last forever. There's going to be deliverance, but this was not a judgment that was going to end the nation and the people. God was going to intervene, and the people would indeed come back from their exile. I think that would have been a comfort to the godly remnant, the people who did listen to Isaiah, in Isaiah's time. Because, you see, if you trace this is subsequent to Hezekiah and get into the reign of Manasseh where things get worse and where if we look at kings it becomes very clear that the exile is inevitable, 
And I think this part, the second part of Isaiah, was probably written during that dark period of the time of Manasseh and maybe also into the time of Ammon. Well, let's pick up that point at the beginning of next hour and conclude our discussion of the third line of argumentation on the unity of Isaiah, and that is the difference in historical background between Proto and Deutero Isaiah. This is the end of lecture number 12 by Robert Benoit on the major prophets, specifically the prophet Isaiah. <laughs>